so that the world may know peace is the whole reason for the Christmas story. I don't normally open with my punchline, but after this year, I think we can all agree peace has been hard enough to find, so I'm not looking to waste your time with clever wordplay or metaphors. I just know we need hope more than ever before. Because unlike ever before, you can literally read never-ending hurt on Facebook posts and in Twitter feeds. And almost every week, it seems we create another hashtag headstone, followed up by arguments with no regard to just how hard Christmas is going to be for a family in that home on this year. So many protests welling up out of passionate fear, filling the streets over political people we will never meet. I see people placing their hope in promises that we all know won't keep, and still, the news grows increasingly bleak with stories of tragedy after catastrophe. Rumors of economic shatterings, a drug epidemic no one's talking about, because we traded truth for substitutes and they ain't really working out, so I think if the world is to ever know peace, there couldn't be a better time than now. In this Christmas season where we can run back to that sacred account that's been echoed for ages on end, a prophecy of a holy God to struggling sinful men that says in order for the world to know peace, a child must be born, and to us a son will be given. A prophecy then states the government will be his alone for the lifting. His names will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and our Prince of Peace. As for the greatness of his government and peace within, they say there will be no end in it. Absolutely no finite measurement. Such a promise as this held all of creation in breathlessness for over 700 years without a single shred of evidence. But then on a midnight clear in Bethlehem, a star proclaimed God was finally with men. It was the first recorded Christmas held in a dirty, dirty stable where God incarnate laid as a baby in the manger. All of heaven sang of a savior and shepherds came with tears bigger than Cubs fans in November. The world's first time with Christ is why we celebrate every December. My friends, I'll say it again, that the world may know peace is the real reason for Christmas. This isn't a ploy to make you forget about pain and reality. It's just so you know my God's in the business of being peace to humanity. So down to earth he came, knowing full well he would have to be pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He took all of our punishment so we might be free, and by his wounds we might meet peace. I hope you're getting this. Peace isn't found in a feeling. Jesus Christ is peace. I wrote this just so that you could meet him. Merry Christmas. <laughs> amen, amen. Well, I've seen that video maybe now about 10 times. Whoops, a little, little loud. <laughs> about 10 times over the last uh, maybe 24 hours as I prepped this and thought about it. And I get chills every time I hear that again. Right, it focuses us on the right thing. And it's interesting because I've had several conversations with people around here this morning too. And we're all kind of in this similar situation. That Christmas comes with so many distractions right, in the world. And whether it's your first Christmas and you're full of excitement or your 56th Christmas like mine. <laughs> right, it can get easily lost. And the real message of Christmas is something that can grow dim over time. 
And so does our excitement. So does our joy. Right? And all the Advent candles. Our peace. Right? Our patience. And the fruits of the Spirit all seem to go away sometimes at Christmas. So today, as I look back, I want to try to bring us back to basics through the Scripture. In the video, it says that the story or the main point of Christmas is so that we may know peace. That's also my prayer here this morning, right, is that all of us can know peace. And that through the Scripture, I can reintroduce all of us who have been introduced before or introduce you to peace. Because peace is a hymn. Peace isn't just a state or a feeling. It's a person. And today we'll go through that. So I'll ask you, if you can, you know, put aside your thoughts for a little while of the Grinch stealing presents. Right? Or Buddy the Elf being reconciled to his father. <laughs> or Frosty the Snowman melting and then being raised again by Santa. Or Rudolph saving the day. Right? All of those things are great and they're great sentiments for us. But they're really nothing more than substitutes for the greatest story right, that mankind has ever known. So today, I ask you to bow your heads with me now. I'll pray and then we'll dig into the scripture all over again and look at that story again. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to have your spirit descend upon this place to speak to us through the scripture. Father, we love you and we love Christmas. That's that special season, but we confess that in the midst of all of it, this noise that goes on in the earth can crowd you out. And as much as we may want to hold tightly to you, those things just seem to erode our ability to do so. Father, we ask for special grace. We ask that you would quiet the noise. Father, we ask that you would bring the scripture alive to us. That today as we look into that, that we would just be filled with your joy. We would be filled with your love. We would be filled with your light. And we would be filled with the peace that surpasses all understanding in knowing what you did for us and that our eternal security is secure in Jesus. And Father, if there are some among us who have wandered in today and maybe uh, don't know you, don't know you in a saving way and who are struggling through this life, Father, would you come in and be their greatest Christmas present they ever received and do that today. Father, we thank you that you were involved in our lives. We thank you for the grace that you show us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So good morning, all. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Bill Heidel, and today I'm here to push my luck of sorts because Jim mentioned last week that one of the, the things that brings up fear in a preacher is his technology <laughs> and having that together. And this week I am going to try to do some new technology. And it's not cooperating, of course. There we go. Let's try this one more time. And I did practice beforehand, but it never fails. Ah, there we go. Things are on. We are continuing in our Advent series. 
And I love the fact that Jess picked all of those things out and put them together in the readings. It was read so well, so well, good job. But as you see, we are moving closer. And as Seth mentioned, it'll spin your head to think we're just six days away, right, from Christmas Eve or seven days away from Christmas. So today, as we go through these, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to go through verses 8 to 14. And we're really going to hyper-focus on one verse around peace. For those who don't know, right, these verses in Luke really comprises the biblical account where the angels are there, the shepherds are there. When you go look in other Gospels, you'll see they flip through pretty quickly. And they transition Right from John the Baptist directly to Jesus' ministry. Right? Luke, the physician, felt that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there was special emphasis that needed to be on this event. And I think you'll see exactly why that was. So I'll trust that you're there. Let's read this, or I'll read this out for us. So Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, among those with whom he is pleased. Now the interesting part that I've always found about this passage is every time I read it, I'm instantly taking back to that Charlie Brown Christmas. Anybody else the same way? Right, if you remember the scene, and this is right growing up, this is what I was seeing, the Charlie Brown Christmas, they're practicing for a Christmas pageant, and it's kind of going a little wonky. And, Ch and Charlie Brown is losing his cool. <laughs> and then what happens? Linus comes in and sort of stops everything and all the noise and recites this from memory. It's an awesome scene, right? About putting God and making God primary in our Christmas celebration. And it really had a great impact. But I'll tell you, if you go back and look at that, he actually leaves off the, what I've highlighted in yellow. When he recites the whole piece, he says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. And he goes. And while that's technically correct, and you'll find that inside of some versions of the Bible as they're translated, there really is an important qualifier onto that. And that qualifier is here, with whom he is pleased. So what I want to do for us today is twofold. 
first. Language is important. And so the first thing that we need to do to really get the joy that comes at Christmas, to get the peace that comes with Christmas, is look at that word peace a little bit deep, more deeply than we might. Right? It's easy. As Christmas goes by, you hear this over and over again. You can just fly by these things. So we're going to pause a little bit and make sure we understand what peace really means in this context. And then, with, that, with whom he is pleased, we're going to answer, or attempt to answer through Scripture, the glaring question that comes from this. That glaring question is, well, how do I please God? Right? Don't we want peace? Right? As we look in the world today, it's harder and harder to find. Everywhere we look is war. Right? You go to, out to the stores, and what do you see? You see an uplift in spirits, but man, let it be one TV that's left on sale, and I guarantee you there's no peace in that store. <laughs> right? It can bring out the worst in us at the same time it can bring out the best. And then, as much as we want to be joyous at Christmas, it's sort of natural, too, that many of us will look back and will miss those loved ones who have passed on. Right? It brings up a different sort of sentiment for us. We think about all the people we might think about as you get up in years and you're ticking off those Christmases. Right? We think about all the things that we've lost over the years. Instead of dwelling on all the things that we have and the things that are to come and being thankful for that. Right? But it's real. It's a real emotion. It weighs on us. It's easy also for us to take our mind in Christmas and swing it a bit to the things that we don't have that we'd like to give to people. Right? Presents take on a huge significance. Well, what if you don't have a lot of means right, to get those presents? And not making any political commentary, just sharing a fact that it is much harder now, today, this year, as compared to three, four years ago, to actually afford presents. And it doesn't stop the retail machine right, that tells you in order to have a great Christmas, in order to have that peaceful time with your family, you need to have great presents. I think they're right, but with the wrong words. It's not presence with a T, it's presence, right? And the presence of the Savior is what we need at Christmas to have peace. So let me look at this peace first. Webster defines this peace as a state, not an attitude but a condition of one's heart, of stillness and serenity, of freedom from disquieting, agitating, anxious thoughts, and a condition of harmony in relationships. It's a pretty good definition, right? It's the heart, the condition of the heart that brings peace that we see, right? It's a freedom from anxiety. That disquieting, agitating, anxious thoughts for you might be Uncle Joey, <laughs> right? Who you're going to see and maybe you're not reconciled with. Or maybe Uncle Joey is just somebody that's really hard to love <laughs> for one reason or another. Right? We've all been there. Maybe it's not Uncle Joey. Maybe it's Uncle Jim. Maybe it's Aunt Jane, right? We have them. We share those same things and we want peace at Christmas. But let's look at another definition. 
Because I think most everyone realized that the Bible wasn't written in English. So Webster might not be the be-all, end-all definition or source for that word. So let's look in the New Testament, where we are here, where Luke penned the gospel in Greek. So let's look at that Greek word, right? That Greek word, irene, from iro, to join or tie together into a whole. Properly, wholeness. When all essential parts are joined together, there's peace, as in God's gift of wholeness. Now, wait a minute, that's a little different, right? It's not radically different, but it still is a little bit different. It's not the peace that we think of as a cessation of war or a cessation of conflict. Now it's starting to talk about tying together and making whole. So there's this idea of a separation somehow. There's this idea of conflict maybe, right? And this idea that two parties are very far apart from each other. And to have peace, you bring them together. And there's completeness and wholeness in that. Does that make sense? Right there? It really is a, a richer definition of peace. But what if I go a little bit further and we look to the Old Testament and we see in the Hebrew, every time that word peace is used in the Bible, what are they talking about? And they are talking about the word shalom. Now, most people have heard that word in some way, shape, or form, right? In the video, they said shalom. The earlier video, the very first video we, we put that just really just sets the stage for everything we're doing today said shalom, right? For the Hebrew, shalom transcends a normal word. Shalom's defined here as word meaning peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. So we have Webster telling us one definition of peace. We have the Greek sort of upping that definition of peace, if you will. And then the Hebrew, which takes everything that they have, and they go even further, and they add this prosperity, right? This idea of success that goes with peace. So important was this word to the Hebrew that they would use it in their greetings every single day. I wish you shalom, brother. Right, I wish you peace. I wish you prosperity. I wish that your life would be whole and free from division, free from conflict. I wish that your life would be whole and complete and that you would be and become and live with those in the way that you're meant to live. Right, it's this idea all together of that life well lived. And I submit to you that when the Bible uses peace and talks about it in Luke, it's the culmination of all of these being expressed. It's truly wondrous just there. Like maybe I should just close up and we'll go out and we'll call that the, the end of the message here today. Because we certainly could just meditate upon that peace alone and understanding what Christmas joy brings. But I'm going to go a little bit further to illustrate. And I mentioned to you that we are going to look sort of at that second piece. So with whom he is pleased, we get the peace. I dare say that all of us want that type of peace that we talked about just now. 
Right? Very few of us would say, I don't want that peace. I want to struggle. I want to have those days filled with anxiety. I just want to go through life and make it hard. Right? No. So how do we please God? Well, let's look at the other side. Romans tells us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I'm going to caution you. Because if you have a religious mindset, and if you've been brought up right in the faith of sorts, or you've been a Christian for a long while, you can read right by those, those are in the flesh really quick. Right? Because I'm not in the flesh as a Christian. I'm in the spirit. But I want you to think something a little bit different. What if I were to say to you, guys, guess what? I met Steven Tyler. You guys know who Steven Tyler is? The lead singer at Aerosmith, right? I met Steven Tyler in the flesh. What does that mean? Right? What does that mean to you? That means I saw him, I experienced him, I was right here, right? He was right in front of me, he was real, he was in the flesh. We say to be human is to be in the flesh. So if we look at it that way, anyone who is human is in the flesh and cannot please God. Oh, all right, I caramba. The way Bart says it. That's heavy, Bill. I thought it's Christmas. Bear with me. <laughs> Romans 2.12, a little bit later, goes on and says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's that about? Well, it's real easy to go, yeah, I'm human, and God understands that I'm human, and therefore, being an understanding God, I don't have to be held to quite the same standards. He'll give me a pass. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, the word tells us that whether you know about the law or not, you're judged by it. We see the same thing today. Oh, you can go 90 miles an hour if you want out on the beltway. If a police officer stops you and you go to court, you can claim Oh, I didn't know how fast I was supposed to go. I didn't know I was breaking the law. What's the judge going to say? Right? If you're lucky, he'll say, okay, guilty, probation before judgment. <laughs> your first time. Or he's going to say, hey, got a nice place for you to visit you probably didn't know about either. Right? It's called central lockup. <laughs> right? Excuse of not knowing the law has never been an excuse for breaking it. Same goes with the natural law of God. Well, what is that law? When you look at the law, and I think this is one of the great places, right? Jesus was asked the same, and he basically summed up the law in one way, shape, or form. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
Well, that's easy. Right? I love God. Do I love him with all my heart and all my soul, or does my heart chase after shiny things? Right? Let's be honest. It's real easy to see that squirrel. Like we all have spiritual ADHD of some sort. Right? Something shiny comes up. Maybe it's a promotion at work. And all of a sudden we hyper focus and we want to get that promotion. And we push everything else out of the way. Right? Are we loving God with all our heart? No. Are we being immoral? No. Are we breaking the law? Oh, yeah. We really are. Right? And then it says the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself as myself so you mean if I wait in line for 20 hours on a Black Friday sale and that TV is that last TV when I come up in line and I got a neighbor who's sitting here totally disappointed and I say too bad you should have got here five minutes earlier and got in line when I get in line and grab my TV and go right am I loving him like myself or am I loving myself more than that person next to you? It's an incredible standard. Not to mention that that person next to me could be unlovely, truly unlovely. But that's the standard. This is God's law, right? Jesus isn't backing off anything that's contained in the Old Testament when he says this is the summation. In fact, he's raising that bar and being very specific about what it takes to be not guilty in God's eyes, what it takes to be pleasing to God. In James 4.4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity. We don't use that word a lot, right? But that enmity means you are an enemy with God. An enemy. Right, not just somebody breaking the law, we're an enemy. Right, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, sobering. And again, you're like, come on, Bill, I'm getting depressed here. Right, where are you going with this? Bear with me. The joke around here is that it's not a bill message without a quote from R.C. Sproul. And so I just want to continue to proliferate that for you here today. But this one is so good from his book, The Holiness of God, that I've got to put it up there for us. He says, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It's an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We're saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. 
Ooh. It's one of the reasons why I love R.C. so much. Because he's straight, he's to the point. He elaborates in a way that I can really understand. And this one itself, when I read The Holiness of God, really made me start seeing sin in a different light. And I truly believe until we get a great picture of sin, we'll never know the peace that comes from Christ at Christmas. So that's why I asked you to bear with me as we went through here. So... As we go on, Romans 3, 10 to 20 says this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we see this whole law summed up, all these rules, regulations, how to be holy. The summation that Jesus gave us, these super high standards, right? It's all to show us so that we have a really good knowledge of what sin is and how sinful we are, right? How treasonous we are in R.C. Sproul's game. And it's not until we come clean with ourselves and come clean before God to realize how sinful we are that that's the case. Right? One of our world leaders, I'm not going to mention by name because it can be somewhat controversial, was asked if he would repent of things that he did. And he said, his answer was, what would I repent of? Okay, If that's your heart, you're missing the boat. Right? You're missing it badly. We, being honest, should be able to repent of a multitude of things every hour of our life. Things we just missed the mark on. Right? Maybe it's not willful rebellion, although I, when I think of mine, I have some of those in my background, and maybe you don't. But maybe it's just missing the mark every time, not being as holy as God's standard. Right? Maybe we strive and strive and try and try. But this is what's held up, is that no one can, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you strive, our actions alone are not going to please God. So imagine the, the shepherds who were there waiting with this knowledge for Christ. The earliest video that was played told us there was about 700 years of quiet, right? The second video that I played right before here kind of added that. What's that referring to? That's referring to Isaiah's prophecy, right? And Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit again, tell and told the world that the sun would come. And in between that time, there was roughly 700 years from when he told them to when God actually showed up. Can we wait 700 years for a present? 
We can't wait seven days sometime, right? And other times, seven minutes. One of the greatest challenges of Christmas time growing up in my household with my brothers and I was hide and seek. Except none of us were hiding. The hiding was done by my parents on the presents, and we were seeking them out, <laughs> right? Because we couldn't wait. And we would try to get in there because my parents generally wrapped everything very late. So we would get in there under different places. And one of the greatest jackpots was when you could find that honey hole just with all those presents sitting around in the back of a closet, right? Downstairs stuffed in the rafters, all kinds of places that parents come up with to hide those presents, right? We did our best not to let our parents know that we were doing this. And we probably made it about four years of really being able to tell Right, and pretending we're surprised on Christmas Day. Woo! <laughs> However, we eventually got caught. <laughs> so, all of this to tell you, imagine, though, waiting 700 years in futility. Knowing and being told and seeing everything there that there's nothing you can do to please God. And then these angels come and say, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom He is well pleased. Wow, something wondrous. How did people deal with it during those seven years? Well, let's look at the people who knew the law the best, right? Our lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes who wrote these things over and over again, right? The Sadducees ruled and went through and debated and talked. How did they respond to this? Love this in Matthew. Right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus' words. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, and then outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now we're getting real, right? So as you get real, many of us have come to that point where we realize, that's me. Right? New Year's resolutions. I'm mixed on New Year's resolution. I like them because I do think you need to set goals for yourself. It's a great, easy place to mark, right? And setting goals is a healthy thing, especially when you have healthy goals to set. What's like the number one goal everyone sets at New Year's? Lose weight. I'm right there with it this year too, right? Losing weight. Is that work on our inward appearance or our outward appearance? Can be both, right? It's inward health. That's really good. We want to get healthy, right, and lose weight. That's inward. But a lot is outward. Right? A lot of the things that we would think of as outward, and we naturally focus there, right? Yes, we are guilty, but it is our natural place in the flesh. So, we know those with great intentions were not successful, and 700 years they waited. And over that 700 years of darkness comes Christmas time. That light, that star that we talked about, that lights on a small town, right? The city of David. Oops, excuse me. 
technology. <laughs> and what is that that truly comes with a star? I think one of the best ways to understand that is to jump back quickly and jump back quickly to Zechariah's prophecy. So just a few verses earlier in Luke, we have Zechariah prophesying about his son, that's John the Baptist, and Mary visiting with the Messiah. In Luke 1, 67, it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So don't miss that. We know the Emmanuel. We see that most of the time, right? We get the visiting. God's stepping down to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's wondrous. But the second part is redeeming. And to those first century Jews, right, who got the message, who understood it, who through the Holy Spirit could see it in its purest form and the, the finish of God's eternal plan was that I couldn't help myself, but he is bringing me back to him. He's redeeming me. He's claiming me. He's pulling me back together in that peace that takes two separate people and joins them back together in wholeness. We have that redemption. But Zechariah goes on. He says, His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, right, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What great news. What glorious news. No longer do we have to fear. No longer do we have to fear our imperfections. Maybe more rightly so, no longer do we have to fear that enmity with God because He is holy and we are not. No longer do we have to fear that we are guilty under the law. We have a child that's given to us. Jesus. And Jesus is that way of peace. That's what Zechariah is talking about here. Let's go back. Even further, those 700 years before, Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Now, lest we miss the significance of this, think 600 years ago in the U.S., what was happening and what was the understanding of the people in the United States? Native Americans were here and populated. They're living. Did they have any way of thinking about or forecasting um, Baltimore City? 
right? Skyscrapers, the urban center, what it would look like, how it would be, the people, the population, right? Cars going back and forth. One of the most compelling things is that the Holy Spirit, God, his eternal plan, seeing through and above time, inspires Isaiah to write this, which he could not have known any other way. Don't debate the validity of the Bible with me. If you want to do that and you're in school and some professor wants to do that, right, don't debate it with me. There's too much evidence. Too much evidence of God's hand in everything that transpires. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10 goes on to explain this joyous thing. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That word fullness of time in the Greek is actually refers to pregnancy. Time was pregnant here, ready to deliver. And Christmas is the delivery of his son. And it says, to unite all things in him. Peace again. Peace with God. Things in heaven and things on earth. 2 Timothy 1, 6-7 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Because it's not up to us, because we can't fully please God alone, because Christ paid for all the debt that we might incur from the law so that we can be righteous in God's eyes, so that we can be fully pleasing to God in His eyes, we live without fear. And we're told, fan in the flame the gift of God. Think how it would be if you went around trying to serve God every day and trying to fulfill His standards. Trying to love people exactly like yourself. Right? Trying to love people and striving so hard to love God with all your heart. Knowing only that every day you would come up short. And where's the joy? Where's the peace in that? Right? No. We are free to fan in the flame. To have the most zealous pursuit of holiness and being like Christ and honoring Him and glorifying Him. Right? To the best of our abilities to all of our enthusiasm, because Christ paid our debts. We're not guilty. We're righteous as God sees us. We are well pleased. What does he say it, with John the Baptist when Jesus comes out of the Jordan, to those who know him? He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is our peace. He's pleased with us as much as he's pleased with his son for those who are in Christ. That's the joyous message at Christmas. Right? We celebrate that point at which the world turned in our time frames, right? from darkness to light, to no hope, to full of joy. Acts 10, 34 to 36 says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nature nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace 
through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. So when the Bible says Christ came for all, he did. Right? And it's for those who accept Christ. Right? And through him, by resting in Christ, God is pleased. And that's our news of peace. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, that means this message is for you. And by accepting Christ, you can please God and you can know peace. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's all who believe in Him and have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. All of us, right, who are sitting here who have done that, right, we're far off and now we're brought near. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of all hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. What a wondrous and joyous news. So when we say glory to God in the highest... And on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. That is all of those who have taken on Christ. And the gift that we celebrate, the best gift at all time, is Christ arriving. Now with that thought, and close us out, I think it's a perfect time. I want to ask Jim to come up to the stage. I think we're going to pray with all zealousness and fanning into flame our prayers as people who are pleased by